I think I would like to start off with a sense of gratitude to all of you for the work you've done in the last couple of days. When I entered the retreat, I only knew a few of you, not very many, and I always wait for the sense of connectedness that comes through the interviews and have appreciated very deeply uh, those exchanges so that uh, there can be a a personal warmth for what it is that you're facing in your life. Really, we see a lot of different people, but the subject matter doesn't change that much. about pain. Is there anyone whose heart doesn't open to that word? It's about pain. I want to talk about pain tonight. You know, oftentimes Buddhism is misrepresented as a rather morbid and dark religion. And what's all this stuff about suffering? It's where the problem is. I mean, we can go, if our car stops working, we can open the hood or we can beat on the fender. My personal preference is to go where the problem is. So we have to follow the pain line. That's all it's about. It's not some statement about how life is. It's not some coloration or painting of the bleakness of existence. It's merely pointing out where the problem is. And we are loath to go there. Many of us get into spiritual work with a sense of bettering ourselves. Suddenly, there can be a tendency of seeking out a retreat to find the finer points that I often miss in myself, maybe those points of calm or quiet, and not that those aren't worthy of our attention, but they aren't the complete story. And yet we can be set on avoiding the difficulties so that we can self-improve according to our plans. And the pain remains hidden behind layers and layers of defenses. I have a story I would like to tell tonight about two individuals who I worked with under hospice care one of whom avoided any discomfort whatsoever and the other who could not avoid discomfort. And that happened to me my first year of hospice work. I was in Houston, Texas. And on my caseload, under my caseload, were two very, very different people. One 
lived in the richest suburbs of Houston called River Oaks. Old money. Oil money. Homes of multi-million dollar structure with servants. You get the picture. So I would enter that home and the woman who was dying in River Oaks had her bed in the foyer of her huge home so that she could direct traffic throughout the waning weeks and days of her life. And she was good at it. I mean, I would step in and she would tell me to sit down, that she would call me when she wanted me. Meanwhile, she had this person going there and that person going there. To the point when she was in a coma and unable to respond, servants were in such fear and trepidation and entering that space that they would tiptoe by her bed for fear of being scolded or yelled at. And I just have this image of a withering arm, almost barren of flesh, lifting with last strength, trying to point someone to go somewhere and unable to keep the arm up so it would fall. But to her last dying breath, the exercise of control and influence. So now I got in my car and went across town to the poorest of poor, the neighborhoods that are so poor in Houston that some didn't even have running water or indoor plumbing. And the woman that I would park my car out in front, whose house I would go into, had, I remember, a big hole in her living room. And chickens would come out from under the porch into this hole. They would jump up while I was there, and then they would start squawking around. And this big, rotund woman named Roxanne would pick up a broom and try to hit the chickens back into the hole. (laughs) It was surreal. And I loved going there. I loved going there because she was so jovial, so full of warmth, welcomed me. And being a very young and inexperienced social worker, I exposed my naivety with a heartfelt but not very skillful question. I said to her, Roxanne, how can you be so happy when you're dying? And she laughed at the question. She said, honey, she said, I've had two children die in my arms. I've looked death right in his eyes, and his eyes are kind. So I ask you, from the point of view of lightness of spirit, of joy of being, which life was better lived? 
the one that most of us would choose is the one of affluence, the one of control, the one of status. But when you look at it in relationship to your death, you begin to see that the very catastrophes of life, if lived with the right orientation to those catastrophes and with those catastrophes, actually enhance our understanding. And what is it that we're going to take with us at that point? Certainly not the possessions of wealth, but perhaps something else if we cultivate it. Now I want to bring us into the retreat. For the first two days, I call the second day the day of the pain body. We are moving from the River Oaks to the poorest of the poor. That's what the first two days is about. And I'd like to show that in terms of the Buddha's conception of wise view. I think wise view is not emphasized enough because it is the umbrella of all of the Eightfold Path. It is the way that unless we have our view, what we see or take the world to be, the assumptions we make about it, in correct alignment, our practices feed the river oaks. Now what do I mean by that? When we first came in, most of us, if not all, took our minds very personally. I mean, it wasn't even a question of taking it personally. It was just me, right? And the retreat environment was structured in a way to show you just me. Its purpose was for just me to be highlighted. That's what its purpose is. And we thought it was just me. And the difficulties we had and the patterns we faced and the irritations we felt and the annoyance and the perturbability and the judgments and the complaining and the moments of joy as well were all personal representations of this process and how I am going through it. And so we scream because there's a shocking quality to a retreat because it highlights just me. It shows you who we are. It shows the problems that we live with. It shows the patterns that drive our life. And we're up close in our face patterns. And we, we're, we see them for perhaps the first time and there is all the reactions to the patterns that we would expect. Probably further condensing the patterns back into themselves. Like, why am I so judgmental? Which is a judgment on the judgment. 
or damn me, what, my, all I do is complain, which is complaining about the complainer, or I can't believe how angry I am, which is annoyance and resistance to the anger, thereby throwing fuel on the fire of self. Hmm? That's how the River Oaks woman died. Everything was just me. It was all about my influence, my control, my will, my needs. Now, in the evolution of the retreat, as the days unfold, quite likely you'll experience a shift in the personalization of that mind. Perhaps not for all, but for most people, it quite likely will happen. And you'll find that there's a growing sense of serenity, of ease, of stability, of affection, when the personalization is just tempered a little bit, just a little more in the background. When we get used to ourselves in seeing things without the immediate reaction to what we see. And it happens. And this is a shift of view in which the mind is no longer taken as personally. And then the whole practice begins to run in accordance to that view, which is the only way it properly can run. Because to keep a fixation of personal sense of me, while the practice is to take us to an impersonal sense of me, is a contradiction of means and ends. So we have to use the practice in alignment with the view of the wise view. So then we get very interested. Perhaps, I hope. And what does it mean? And what is holding me back? And why am I taking things so personally? And what is this whole thing about? What is this mind? Why is it such a problem for me? I hope there's that kind of interest that Christina spoke about last night. Because that's what's needed to take the next step. To go into the difficult. To move into our pain. People who have suffered, like the River Oaks, like the poor woman in the story, has seen the limitation of her influence on the world. Her will was thwarted. She didn't want her children to die. She knows that she is no longer the ruler of the universe. And so pain has a very humbling, or can have, a very humbling impact upon us. It shows us ourselves. It shows us what we are and that we are not in control as we think ourselves to be. And perhaps the course of these two days have shown you just that. You don't ask your mind to think. 
but it thinks. If you don't ask it, how personal can it be? How much of you is there in it? Neither do you ask emotions to arise when they come or physical sensations, or in fact, any sense door. Where do we get this sense of control? So, a spiritual awakening, spiritual awakening is awakening through the causation of pain. We awaken through how we've tied ourselves and created the friction and resistance and conflict in our life. And it's our willingness to go to those areas of conflict because that's not the ego that wants to go there. The ego's strategy in relationship to pain is to flee, is to fly away, is to be... And it does it in a variety of different ways. It does it through blame. If I can blame you for the problems I'm having, I don't have to look at the problems. All I have to do is get rid of you. And so wars are created. Or murder. Hmm? Why? Because... We refuse to look at the problem. And it's very slippery. The metaphor I like is you take a flat rock and you throw it across a smooth lake and it touches the lake and skips. And touches the lake and skips again. And will skip as many times as it possibly can. It will not plummet into the water to any depth. So, too, we are so afraid of the pain that we will skip from blame to blame to accusation to anything we can do to keep the object or the cause, the believed cause of the pain externalized. We call this prejudice. But at some point, and I don't know how we reach this point, to be honest, the strategies implode on themselves. The blame doesn't hold up anymore under scrutiny. And the rock comes to its last skip and begins to plummet to the depths of the water. This is the first sign of spiritual maturity. That I'm not interested in fender repair. I want to go under the hood and see what the problem is. And this is where the Buddha really began his teaching. Now we have entered the gate of Buddhism. And it's a sacred gate. We have touched, when we touch our pain, 
we've entered. And the question arises, why do we suffer? Why do we have conflict? Why is there such resistance? And what I mean by pain is resistance. It's as if we protect, had this protective shield only, only let in the quality or perceptions of life that we want and we'll hold out the others. And how can that be anything but a rub? In fact, we enjoy the rub. Because the ego, or the sense of me, forms its story around that rub. It's created its body image. If you rub against something, your outline is known. And through the rubbing, you have a definite sense of boundary, which gives you a definite sense of being who you are. And so to rub, in some ways, satisfies the ego's greatest need, which is to be defined and to be known. So we create the rubs to get the boost of being someone. And many of us have life patterns of the same rub time and time again. We may be drama wallas. We love the dramatic. And we can't stand that which is not dramatic. And so we create the variables in our life which will inevitably lead to another drama. Isn't that interesting? And so the play of patterns becomes strengthened over and over again with a stronger and stronger sense of definition being done each time the pattern reoccurs. And is it any wonder then that these patterns show themselves so obviously when we are quiet? Because they're, they're on automatic now. We perhaps generated them at one time consciously, but now they run under the surface of the water, just below the surface, setting up time and time the scenarios of our life that lead to continual lack of intimacy, the same problems time and time again at work, in relationship with one another, with ourselves. And even though inside we hurt, never mind. We just self need to self-improve and become more defined. And if we get more defined, our logic goes we'll hurt less, except we hurt more. And the cycle just goes on and on and on. Madness, 
Why do we suffer? One of the ways that we perpetuate the sense of a rub is that we create a reality that rubs against the real one. So we have two realities. We have the one that's at hand, and we have the one that we would like to happen, that we've invested in, and since the real one is at odds with the invested one, there's going to be a rub. It's going to cause friction at some point. We believe and invest our truth in mental movies. Now, I want to take you behind the scenes of the movie because we're the editors of the movie. Okay, we're switching metaphors. I'm sometimes accused of using too many. (laughs) It's never slowed me down. (laughs) So we've got these reels and reels of tape called memory. Hmm? And we're the directors of the show. Got to understand, we're the directors of the movie. Now, we are in a frame that is called the here and now. Hmm? Except we've got a lot of movies of the here and now and the past, and we certainly have got a whole reel ahead of us So we think, all right, I want to make this frame as secure as I can in the future. So I plot my film to have and hold those images. That's called worry. And if I plot those images with a bunch of horror scenes, that's called fear. Or if I go back to previous reels and say, well, this frame just isn't living up to what was in the past, the past movies that have gone through it. And so I'll just bring a scene from the old past in and splice it right in the here and now. That's called desire. And we live with the editation, the editing process, Constantly trying to be the best director and get ourselves an Oscar, which everyone in here deserves, including the speaker. And we manipulate the frames and the reels and the projection to fit our needs, but never to see things as they are. For to see things as we are, we have to look through the frame that is actually occurring. To do that, we have to feel the pain associated with that frame. But because we have no intention of taking accountability for that pain... We stay in one side of the real or the other, but never in that frame. And to take on and to be willing to go and move into pain means 
that we stay with the reality as it is. Now to do so, we have to face the worst fears imaginable. Because in this frame of who I am, of what is actually happening, of this here and now, I have a whole personal set of beliefs that are running the movie projector. I'm inadequate. I'm no good. I don't like myself. Whatever your display, my display, our display is, it's there in that frame. The problem with that pain of inadequacy or whatever we might be feeling is that we believe it to be true. And that's why the pain is so fierce and so intense. Not because it is true, but because we believe it to be true. We think if we open up to the pain of our inadequacy, we face the conclusion that I am inadequate. And no one wants to face that conclusion. No one wants to finally be pinned to their worst belief. And so we stay two frames ahead or three frames behind. It's true. And it's okay. And if you open your heart to the best attempt the mind can make for you to be free, this is it. This is the best it can do for you. And it's doing its job in the only way it can. To keep your position safe from the here and now. So we have to have a great deal of appreciation for what it's given us. And honor it. But the payoff which is that we project our pain outward, isn't worth the pain that is constantly gnawing us inward. And at some point, the strategy fails. We can't keep doing that. We just can't keep doing it. Our arms get tired of trying to hold things at bay. So the theater crashes into reality. Now feel what that crash feels like. Because what we anticipate it to be is a projection of our worst case scenario. I won't know who I am. I don't know. I can't. If I don't have inadequacy, who am I behind that? What we're afraid of is not the inadequacy, but the nothingness that the inadequacy protects us from. Anything but that, anything but not knowing anything about me. Okay. Now feel it. Feel the stillness. Feel what lies on the other end of that. 
in this room. It's not 20 years from now, it's here and now. And we relate to the conflict and struggle contained within the moment with our history with conflict. Many of us have very poor histories with conflict. And so our inward conflict brings forth that same strategy one strategy is well i deserve i deserve it i deserve the the pain another strategy is to avoid it at all cost another strategy is to deny that it's even there just pretend it's not there just hide it repress it or Smooth it over. Let's make everything nice and happy. Everything's going, everything's going to be okay. Just say a Nietzsche a few times and it'll go away. But what about entering it? What about coming into it? And we like to have a lot of explanations and analyze the conflict and we spend a lot of time doing that but now move with me for a second and see what explanations do explanations allow the pain to be justified through the explanation. And that isn't total willingness to feel it. That's ameliorating the impact. So explanations really don't work at the level we're speaking. And that is why we suggest when you have an emotion or a feeling not to get lost in the explanation of why you feel that. The content of it. I'm angry because da-da-da-da. Because the content of the emotion, the explanation, is like the rock that hits the water and skips once more. Just to hold it. Just to feel it to follow the pain line, to move where the pain is. And every time the mind moves, you bring it back. Gently, kindly, kindly with kindness. Because without kindness, we are seeking or following an old strategy of conflict. I deserve this. I don't deserve to be kind with it. I deserve the pain. Sometimes, in fact, we get so caught up in the sense that we deserve it that we seek out practices that reinforce our sense of deserving pain. And so kindness must be intoned 
within this discovery, within this adventure of following the pain. So we look at all of the ways that pain, the patterns that we live with, we look at the patterns that we live with. And one of the greatest patterns that most yogis, and I talked about this on the last retreat, so I won't go into it with much depth, is judging. Another one is complaining. Another is a controlling mind. There are, I did a series in Seattle called The Distortions of Mind. And I just start. I say, what, what, what are your distortions of mind? So there was the complaining mind, the lonely mind, the controlling mind, the melancholy mind, the wanting mind. The, I've done 12 and I haven't even touched the numbers. 12 of them. 12 talks on different aspects of mind. The insecure mind, the, on and on. And those are patterns that we go. It's not, no, it's, it's important. The patterns are generated by pain. And to stay with just the pattern of judging, oh, judging, judging, I'm judging, is not deep enough. The stone hasn't moved deep enough to uproot or to see where the what is driving that judgment? And in the act, it's not as if you have to do some analysis. It's actually in the act of judgment that the pain is found. It's in that moment. So you just move when you judge to the emotional element behind the judge, which is, if we are open enough, we can see as inadequacy. Why else would we judge except that we feel lower than something and to raise our own inward status, we put something down. And therefore, the counterweight of that is to thrust us up. So that's the payoff of the judgment. But So you go to the sense of inadequacy and stay with that. And just feel that. Okay, I can feel this. This is okay, I can feel this. I don't like it, but it's okay. And the inadequacy opens up. And for a while we believe, we're very, we kind of deflect our gaze because it's very difficult, because we believe when it opens up we're going to see the kernel, the nugget of, of the truth of ourselves, which is that we are inadequate. And when it opens up, you know what? There's nothing. All life holds the same element. It was just the fear that created the substance. Once the fear is addressed, just through seeing, okay, it opens up to nothing. 
it opens up to stillness. Feel the stillness. Feel what the woman meant when she said she had looked into the eyes of death. Not a horror, but a joy. Not a distortion, but a contentment. Right here. It's as close to us as our hearts and has always been such. Okay, now we know the secret and it makes the opening that much more joyous. I can feel this. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.